Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I've asked you all here today because I'm tired of being the least famous governor in America. There's only me here, Governor. Exactly what I mean. Those other governors have like three guys. I have one guy. They have twice as many guys as me. Governor, your math... Why isn't 40 minutes 60. doing a profile of me? Nobody cares that I've raised taxes 70%. Uh, you're supposed to lower them. Oh, that's your own blind prejudice talking, Cecil. How long have I been a governor now? Three years? You were sworn in last week when the governor died. The lieutenant governor confessed to a homicide, and the Speaker of the House texted a picture of Let's his... not even go there, Beanie. It just seems like all the governors of the other 31 49. states are running for president in 3014. 2016. Governor, look, you're just not ready. Maybe with a year of coaching, we can get you ready for the national media. We'll need to do some special work on that one little problem of yours. And then we're going for the whole six yards. Nine. Gesundheit. You're not the only one that speaks German. I don't know if I can take this. Today on the show, Connecticut's governor dives into the national spotlight. Rolling Stone gets a bad grade for its UVA report. And everybody hates Duke, but why? And now he objected to all the Duke references in Braveheart, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, at the end when they paint their faces blue, I was thinking, that's not historic. I mean, that's, I mean, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't even have known about Duke then. That's so historically inaccurate. Uh, But we'll come to that. That's later in the show. Uh, We'll be talking to the director of the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, I Hate Christian Leitner, uh, as we get ready for the Duke-Wisconsin championship game tonight. Uh, And right before that, we're going to talk to an online reporter for the Pointer Institute about uh, the the, um, Columbia Journalism Review report on the, uh, (laughs) this is complicated, University of Virginia case as reported in Rolling Stone. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, that's the second segment of the show. But here in the first segment, as you might have guessed from the introduction, we will be talking about Governor Daniel P. Malloy. And the reason that I call him Governor Daniel P. Malloy is that when he was on CNN last week, one of the many national appearances that he made last week, he was introduced by Carol uh, Costello as Mayor Daniel Malloy. See, it doesn't always go well when you make your debut in the national media, but we've been watching Daniel Malloy, watch him, watching him. We knew that he was going to ascend to the, to the chair of the Democratic Governors Association. We've seen him in the past kind of counterpunching uh, against uh, Bobby Jindal in public situations, uh, but not like last week. Last week was kind of a media blitz, particularly as he uh, put uh, Governor Mike Pence uh, of Indiana in the crosshairs and talked to, well, I called him a bigot at one point and said the reality is the governor's not a stupid man, but he's done stupid things um, and uh, garnered quite a bit of attention. So by the end of the week, uh, people were starting to write about this newly visible uh, Daniel Malloy. So joining us to talk about that today is uh, Tom Dutchick, editor of the CT Capital Report. Uh, he's been aggregating all this coverage and watching it grow. And then uh, for an kind of outside perspective, but not entirely outside, Brad Bannon, president of Bannon Communications Research. Um, so, Brad Bannon, I'm going to start with you because uh, obviously we live here in the Connecticut fish tank, and so we know what the other fish look like and, and how they swim around the coral. But you're kind of outside the fish tank. As, as Governor Malloy is making a bigger impression, grabbing a higher profile last week, how, how does that look from the outside? I mean, how how does that play? Well, it plays very well among uh, Democrats. 
the governor, Governor Malloy, was the first uh, governor to call for a boycott of Indiana. And uh, after he called for the boycott, uh, several other uh, Democratic governors did the same thing. So he made quite a splash because he was the first governor on record to say that uh, the Indiana wrong, uh, the, the Indiana law was racist and bigoted. In fact, uh, on the Sunday, one of the Sunday morning talk shows last Sunday, he said uh, he called Mike Pence by name a bigot. Mm. And it's very unusual to see uh, one politician use such harsh language about another politician. And they usually shade shade it, but he flat out called them a bigot, and a lot of people feel that way about the Indiana law. So he made quite an impression among Democrats. Let me ask you another question about that. As somebody who um, handles so much opinion research, so in Connecticut, uh, Daniel Malloy has always had kind of low approval ratings. Like he's never had a real, at least not in the Q poll anyway. He's never had a real bumper approval rating. You know, even Christie gets a seventy. You know, at the at the peak of his career, Malloy can't creep up over fifty here. He's he. He's a a governor, a two-term governor, who's never really established kind of bumper crop popularity. But I'm sort of wondering about the difference between that and the national stage. At At the state level, people know granular things about you. They see you every day. They make various kinds of decisions about you. They get sick of you, that kind of thing. I'm assuming that one's national ratings or how one is perceived nationally is really different from how one is perceived at the state level. Uh, Yeah, it's not surprising. That's very often the case. Uh, You know, I I don't know the governor well or about the governor, but I, you know, I have followed him, and especially in the last week or so. And it seems to me here you have a guy who basically says what's on his mind. And, you know, again, I'd use calling Mike Pence a bigot uh, is a good example of that. And people, politicians like that tend to be fairly, uh, they polarize people. Uh, so given his temperament and the way he talks, it's not surprising to me uh, that his support in uh, Connecticut is a 50-50 proposition, because that's often what happens to politicians uh, who speak their mind uh, and don't muddle their message. So, Dom Dudchick, you've been watching all of this coverage. And first of all, we should say there's another storyline developing. Unsurprisingly, the opposition party here in Connecticut, the Republican Party, is now saying what? That he's too interested, too interested in uh, his national ratings, spending too much time talking to, to Joe and Mika on Morning Joe and not enough time worrying about the state. Senator Lynn Fasano, the, the Senate minority leader, has come out and said that the governor is, quote-unquote, checked out. And I think that's the drumbeat that the Republicans would like to present, that this governor, given all the enormity of the problems we have here in the state of Connecticut, he'd rather be out on the fundraising circuit for the DGA or out on some you know, morning talkies on mostly you know, liberal, democratic, talking points, uh, television stations, rather than minding his business. And my former boss, Governor Weicker, came out over the weekend in a, uh, in a piece, I, think, I believe it was in one of the Hearst properties, that said that he, the governor needs to stick to his knitting and stay home. Um, Brad Bannon, um, one of the things that you're alluding to is the fact that one senses that nationally the, govern, the, the, the Democrats are eager for Heroes isn't quite warriors, maybe, right? I mean, absolutely. Okay, yeah, so pick that up and run with it. Well, I think one of the reasons why uh, Dan Malloy has caught the attention of liberal activists nationally is because they've been looking for someone uh, 
you know, a, you know, a couple. Uh, I guess it was a couple years ago, or maybe sooner than that. Uh, Governor Malloy essentially said, uh, told the Democrats have to grow a pair, mm-hmm. and I think that's how many uh, Democratic activists feel nationally. Uh, that the Democratic Party nationally doesn't stand up uh, for its beliefs, and the liberal activists believe that if the Democratic Party was more forthright, as Governor Malloy wants it to be, uh, and we would be in better shape because I give an example. Uh, one of the first things the governor did when he took office was he raised taxes on the rich. Uh, and that is something uh, that Democratic activists think is a very good way to deal with budget problems rather than cutting programs for poor people. Yeah, but the reality, and you know, the reality is that's what America wants. If you look at any national poll, and you ask people about the best way to cut the deficit, they almost always say cut the tax, uh, raise taxes on the rich, and that's always the number one thing. And people think if Democrats stood up for their ideas, they'd do a lot better because their ideas are actually very popular. Um, Tom Dudgick, I'm wondering, um, when you see the national coverage of Malloy, um, and he sometimes is referred to, kind of uh, working a little bit off uh, what uh, Brad just said, often referred to as a, a national progressive. Um, do you recognize the governor that you see here in the state of Connecticut uh, every day? Well, yes, I do, because I think this is part of a, of a strategy for him to extend his brand uh, beyond the borders of, of our state. You know, I mean, Donna Brazil you know, called, called him the heart and soul of, of our Democratic Party nationwide. And I think that what happens, you know, when a guy like Malloy sits around and watches television and sees Martin O'Malley going to New Hampshire and raising money, it's the same thing, Colin, you know, you're smart enough to understand that, like a guy like Chris Dodd would be in the Senate and go, hey, John Edwards is running for president. I could mop the floor with John Edwards. And so Dodd gets in the race president. And same thing here with Malloy. He looks around the country and says, who's speaking for these democratic principles? And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to basically be the mantle. But Colin, let's never forget the fundraising component of these issues. I believe that the governor believes fervently in these issues when it comes to the governor, Governor Pence. But I also think that on the flip side of that is these issues are powerful touchstones to the liberal base of the Democratic Party from a fundraising standpoint. Um, So then the question would be, who well, I'll ask you this this time. When you say that, are you saying that, in other words, Governor Malloy thinks he can be helpful to the Democratic Party nationally, uh, no matter who's running for president, no matter what his his, his exact role uh, is beyond uh, head, head of the Democratic Governors Association, that he wants to be helpful with fundraising, or does he want to be helpful to himself with fundraising? Does does he have stars in his eyes at that level? No, you know, I you know, no one can can look into his soul and, and say what he's thinking, but. I I think that he's, in many cases, he, he has a plan in his, in his mind, and I think that, that, that his ascendancy in the DGA by raising money, by being part of the finance uh, committee, and now actually going to head it up, he'll be out there raising money. But I also think he wants to be on the stump. So this may not be the year for, for a, a President Malloy or a Vice President Malloy, but who knows down the road. So Brad Bannon, you know, just to sort of um, 
build on what you said before. I mean, the other thing one hears a lot is that the Democrats nationally don't have much of a bench. You know, that that if if I say, yep. well, if it's not Jeb Bush, it's and then I can name 12 Republicans. Right. Yep. And 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 people will recognize those names. And some of them may seem a little bit more far fetched than others, but they're not completely far fetched. Whereas with the Democrats, you say if it's not Hillary Clinton, it's, you know, and, and there really isn't too much that comes after that sentence. So I'm, I'm also wondering whether Malloy just wants to be one of those names that at least somebody would recognize if it came up in that context. Well, yeah, I think he probably does. I think he wants to be part of the national debate. And, you know, again, uh, you he wanted to become uh, chair of the Democratic Governors Association. And if you look at the people who have either been chair of the Republican governors or Democratic governors, uh, you're talking about people like uh, George W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton. And so it is has been a stepping stone uh, to higher office. Now, I don't think Dan Malloy has any plans to run for president this year. Um, I think pretty much Hillary Clinton has already notched the nomination. Uh, but the reality is I could see someone like Tom Malloy uh, getting a cabinet job like Secretary of Health and Human Services or Housing and Urban Development. And my guess is uh, that's probably his uh, short-term goal is to uh, become a cabinet officer uh, in a Clinton administration, if there is a Clinton administration. Uh, Tom Dudchick, you heard it here first, Malloy in the Clinton cabinet. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think I think the governor enjoys the trappings of, of office more than than he would uh, be a cabinet secretary. Look, I mean, there's 50 governors. I mean, it's, it's an elite. Of, everyone talks about the Senate being an elite body. There's only 50 governors out there. You basically control everything. You have troopers. You have you have, you have drivers. You have everything. You know, I just don't see him sitting around, uh, you know, cabinet secretary, you know, with one driver and a couple couple aides. <laughs> you make it sound so unglamorous, like there's a a light bulb. <laughs> hanging down by a cord. Well, Brad Bannon, irrespective of what choice he makes, the other question we have about uh, a politician like Dan Malloy is, you know, how far can you go just on sort of guts and and uh, counterpunching and maybe even throwing the first punch occasionally rather than counterpunching? In other words, we know that, you know, occasionally a guy like Bob Dole will come along and, and the, the first time he ran nationally was as a vice presidential candidate. And there was that kind of sense that sometimes you like to have an attack dog in the number two spot who can say stuff that you don't want to say. You want to seem presidential and above the fray, but maybe you got a number two person who, who says that kind of thing. But I wonder in 2015, 2016, or future election cycles, how, how far you can go if you're just the tough guy, just the guy with the bloody knuckles? Well, you know, the answer to your question is it's tough. Uh, anybody, any politician who says what's on his mind is going to run into trouble. Uh, they tend to be they tend to be polarizing figures, uh, and the system we have of electing a president uh, tends to favor politicians who are you know kind of with a muddled message that coat that couch all their statements in political ease that no one understands. Uh, so it's tough for someone like Malloy. Would be tough for someone like Malloy the way he is now to be elected to national office because he is a polarizing figure, and that's the penalty you pay for speaking your mind in our political system. I don't think it's good, but that's the reality. 
And and Tom Dudgeon does also raise the question. I mean, I think we've all watched to see if Dan Malloy has that other gear, you know, a gear other than that pretty aggressive one that we see. And we, we certainly saw it at the time of Newtown where suddenly his heart was very visible. It's probably the other time he really was a, a person of, of national interest for that very tragic reason. But but for the most part, I don't, maybe you see it differently. I don't really see him flashing that other side. Like, you know, Joe Biden is another guy who, who can throw some punches that maybe uh, that maybe President Obama doesn't want to throw or or maybe even even push President Obama into doing something President Obama didn't know he was going to do that week. Um, but Biden also has this incredibly charming quality to him. I mean, there, he, he really is somebody you wouldn't mind sitting next to on a long plane ride. Yeah, I think where you exactly where, where you'll find it difficult for Malloy to kind of make that transition is for him to be the great retail politics uh, politician that we know in in Connecticut, whether it's a Congressman Larson or even in the time um, Governor Rowland. These these people are very affable people, backslapping politicians, Billy O'Neill, the, 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 the saloon keeper. Lloyd doesn't have that quality. He's the kind of guy that, well, he's a prosecutor. He wants to go after you. And the question is, well, can, can he make that turn? And, and, you, and you and I have heard numerous stories of his, his work on the other side of the camera, whether it's going to the soup kitchens on Christmas Day or Thanksgiving Day, where there's no cameras, and he is engaged with his constituency and shows that different side, but certainly not to us, Colin. Brad Bannon, one thing that's going to happen, obviously, as you say, very probably Hillary Clinton is going to run for president. Um, and, and that means, first of all, that the the role of a Connecticut Democrat, another Northeastern Democrat, is probably going to be a little bit limited. In terms of what they're going to be looking for in 2016, they're going to be looking for help from other parts of the country, I would assume. Uh, those will be much bigger players in all this. And and you kind of wonder even long term how interesting, interested anybody's ever going to be nationally in uh, a Connecticut Democrat. Well, uh, you're right in terms of a vice presidential uh, candidacy. Uh, I think it would be highly unlikely that um, someone, Hillary Clinton, who was a senator from New York, is going to pick someone, uh, a governor of Connecticut, to be her running mate. My guess is she'd go out west or go to the Midwest to get somebody with some regional balance. But, uh, yeah, he, Malloy, being governor, being chair of the Democratic Governors Association, is a key spot during a presidential campaign. Because if you look the way the campaign finance laws are set up, or they're really not set up anymore, uh, a lot of money in the presidential campaign uh, gets funneled from, through the Democratic Governors Association and through the Republican Governors Association. And so in that way, one thing this will do for Malloy, and I think Tom's right, is Tom Malloy will be spending a lot of time with the people uh, who give big money to Democrats, and it's part of the job at the DGA or the RGA, and that's going to give him contacts which would serve him well in the future. I sense Dan Malloy still has some problems with name recognition. Let me just read some tweets here. Uh, Steve says, that's what we need, a president that ignores 50% of the country and ignores everything he doesn't want to hear. How about no? Beth buys on Twitter. She, I think when I was talking about the Democrats, the Democrats not having much of a bench, she just tweets the name Warren. That would be Elizabeth Warren. And then Amanda tweets, no doubt the governor is positioning himself for bigger things. And Scott Jackson now moving up from the mayoral role in Hamden to a higher profile state role. 
OPM. How high profile is that? That's like what uh, Dudchick was talking about before. Is right here to pick up the slack in Hartford. We're going to have to end the conversation here. We want to thank Brad Bannon, president of Bannon Communications Research. Follow him on Twitter at Brad Bannon. Uh, Tom Dudchick, uh, follow him at CT Capital Report. He's the editor of CTCapitalReport.com. We're going to take that break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to you about Rolling Stone. All right, before we plunge into the Rolling Stone story, let me just quickly tell you about a couple of things here. Uh, coming up tonight, it's the Ear Cave. This is Katie Tularski's uh, occasional adventure into really kind of interesting audio, radio kinds of stuff. It's at the Carriage House uh, in Hartford. I'm not sure what time. Seven? They're usually at seven, I think. Uh, so that's the Ear Cave. That's tonight. Uh, the general public is invited. Um, and I, they're usually free. I don't know. Maybe they're like $100 to go to now. But uh, last time I went, they were free. So, and, But it's really a lot of fun. And it's Katie kind of just showcasing all kinds of really interesting uh, audio stuff, uh, storytelling, you know, in a radio format, stuff like that. So um, that's one thing. And then on Wednesday night, um, David Edelstein, America's greatest living film critic, David Edelstein. Uh, you've enjoyed him on Fresh Air and on CBS Sunday Morning and on New York Magazine uh, all at once. Uh, he'll be in town at Watkinson School with me on stage for the Freshly Squeezed series. That also starts at 7. Uh, you need to call Watkinson School or go online at watkinson.org and look for the Freshly Squeezed uh, uh, logo uh, and uh, join us. It's open to the public. We'd love to have you there. We'd even like to have you maybe uh, come for a little buffet dinner beforehand. But tickets are kind of going fast here, so you need to, to work on that one. Uh, but join me and David for a conversation about movies, um, and, uh, issues in movies, and also maybe get him to tell a few stories about what it's like to be a big-time movie critic. All right, so we're going to move on here. Uh, Kristen here, an online reporter for the Pointer Institute, uh, joins us now. One of the big stories of the last 24 hours or so has been the release of a Columbia uh, journalism report uh, on uh, the reporting done by Rolling Stone uh, in covering what was portrayed anyway as a terrible, terrible in- incident of uh, campus rape. Uh, so um, let's begin, Kristen. Maybe you could just sort of, for people who haven't followed uh, what happened in the last 24 hours, what what was the Columbia Journalism Reviews? What were the big takeaways from that report? Hi, Colin. Thanks Hi. for having me on. So um, I think the biggest um, takeaway for me is that this was an institutional failure at all levels. Um, you know, you can blame the reporter. You can blame the editor. You can blame the fact checker. and You can blame the publisher. At every point um, in the process of creating this story, any one of those people could have, you know, hit the brakes and said, we need to go back for more and we wouldn't be talking about this today. Um, Another big takeaway, uh, and I think this is something that we have all known um, in journalism and have repeated since November when the story came out, but that the failings of this story were not because of the source, but because this magazine told a story with one source. And um, finally, all of this could have been prevented with some basic you know, kind of journalism 101, which is you talk to more than one person and you confirm everything in five different ways, every way you can. So uh, a lot of what the CJR came up with today, and they did this at the behest of Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone said, said let's have an outside party, look at this, and, and see what went wrong. And so what, we're, what we see there is that the story of this on-campus rape, uh, as you're saying, they relied on one source, a woman who was identified as Jackie. Um, and a lot of things just didn't get checked. For example, the reporter quoted or described an encounter that Jackie had had with three friends uh, in connection with this incident, uh, but 
but uh, who seemed to react in a very callous manner towards what had happened to her. Uh, the, um, the, the they never identified. Uh, the reporter never personally spoke to any of those three friends. Uh, they also she also did not um, track down. Uh, the 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 primary male the primary male offender described in this incident and and talked to him um, and the editors never really seemed to press for those kinds of things uh, even calling the, the the fraternity for comment uh, the reporter didn't specify the specific allegation against the fraternity um, a lot of sort of basic stuff that, that you just get taught in high school journalism to do so. Um, Kristen, as you look at that, though, what do you think drove that? I mean, one theory about this is that because campus rape is such a sensitive topic and because uh, reporters don't want to put the rape victim on trial, that, that, you know, there's an argument to be made for not doing a lot of cross-checking, not effectively cross-examining the source. So there's two value systems that are in conflict here. One of them is never assume every, anything, check every story out. And the other one is don't over-cross-examine somebody who's already pretty damaged. Damaged. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the worst part of this story is how much damage it has done to uh, victims of sexual assault who will maybe now be questioned when they bring forth their stories. Um, but I can tell you, as somebody who has been reporting for uh, more than a decade, uh, often with, you know, difficult situations with people who have been um, injured or, um, you know, traumatized, that the first thing that I say to someone, and I learned this in journalism school, was, you know, I am going to get close to you and I want to find things out, but I'm not your friend. My loyalty is to my readers. And so I'm going to ask you questions that are going to be uncomfortable, and I'm apologizing for it in advance. I'm going to call you back, and I'm going to ask them again. So I think that there's this tension between, um, yeah, wanting to respect this woman and, and what she has been through and and doing the right work. And unfortunately, they erred too far on trusting uh, one person. And, you know, um, we were reporting on this uh, at Pointer last night, and, you know, somebody somebody shared on Twitter, you know, it's just a basic tenet of journalism. If your mother says she loves you, check it out. And um, I think, though, also, Colin, there were a lot of ways they could have gone about finding out things um, to see if this was real. One of the things that the report says is to talk to her three friends. Um, the Washington Post managed to do that, and that really pushed the story forward. Another is to um, just find every public record that you can. So I, I don't think they would have had to uh, – I don't think it was a choice between being hard on Jackie – and being her friend, I think that journalists do this all the time. It just wasn't done in this case. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting for people who aren't journalists um, that, you know, most of us are pretty accustomed when we write something, when we write a magazine piece in particular, and particularly in a sort of post Jason Blair, uh, post Stephen Glass world. Like right. you, you expect, and you usually have, I usually have anyway, just a list of all the people that I expect the fact checkers to call. Like, here's everybody I talk to. Here's their email address. Here's their go ahead. You know, I'm and and. I can understand in a situation like this that there's one person that Jackie maybe needs to ha be handled a little bit differently, like a slightly different conversation uh, has to happen. Like, here's her name. Here's what her real name is. And, you know, here's how comfortable either I or she uh, might be with some outside person having a conversation. But everybody else in the story ought to be fact checkable. And at some level, Jackie need needed to be more fact checkable than, the, you know, by somebody other than the reporter than Rolling Stone made her. And so in in that sense, Rolling Stone, really, they, they sort of walked away from, you know, that's a real basic thing, right? 
Right. And not only did they walk away from it, but, um, you know, shortly after uh, this story started being refuted, they blamed her very quickly. They said we were wrong to trust in her. And they, they walked that back. Uh, but that's absolutely not the kind of response you want to see uh, putting something like this, um, you know, on the shoulders of somebody who says they've been through something horrible. Um, that's our job. It's not her job. And um, I, I think that was another major um, another major feeling in this story. Yeah, although, and actually even, you know, as recently as kind of now, Jan Wenner, the top guy at Rolling Stone, is still kind of doing that thing. Like, you know, we got fooled by a really good story to a fabulist that keeps calling her. I'm thinking, well, yeah, but I mean, stop making it sound, I mean, I'm sort of with you on that. Stop making it sound like something really bad happened to you. You did right. something really I, bad. Yeah, and I think that's making this worse. And, and, and what you're finding, what I'm seeing today, uh, we just... Um, finished getting a story up on our site about the um, the press conference and uh, that the Columbia Journalism School authors had talking about the report. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times the question came up that, like, why has no one been fired? Um, but it came up several times, maybe two or three. And um, that's, a, you know, I, I think journalists are probably rightly mad about this. I do have to say, I think it's great that Rolling Stone commissioned this, that they asked that this be done. I think it's great that Columbia asked these questions, and this is something that we will probably all be talking about for a long time. But, you know, today, it still doesn't seem like enough. We're talking to Kristen Hare from the Pointer Institute right now. Yeah, I want to come back to this. I mean, I, I... I struggled a little bit with the firing point of this. I mean, even though Jan Winner allegedly one time fired Jim DeRocatis over a hoodie in the Blowfish Review, and, <laughs> right. but apparently doesn't want to fire anybody over this. Even so, I don't, I don't necessarily need for people to be fired, even in situations like this. But what disturbed me, but, but absent a firing, you need to see something else. And so you've got one of the top editors, uh, Bill Dana, saying uh, that they don't need new ways of doing things at Rolling Stone. They, quote, just have to do what we've always done and make sure we don't make this mistake again. That that sounds, I mean, at a moment of of maximal humiliation, <laughs> that seems like a pretty casual reaction somehow. Yeah, I think that's really rubbed, rubbed people the wrong way. And, you know, um, you're a journalist, and, and you know, Colin, too, though, that what we are hearing and seeing uh, in the public, uh, there's another layer. There are conversations going on. And so, you know, I understand in a way that they are kind of circling the wagons and protecting their own. Um, but it would be nice to have them review some processes and say, we are going to do things differently. This never should have happened. And, and you know, journalism, high school journalism students could point that out to you probably. Right. So you're saying uh, other layers. Well, one of the other layers is they're going to get sued. Oh, they're they're going to get sued, right? They already know they're going to get sued. It's they already know they're going to get sued. I, I am, what I imagine is that there's, you know, <laughs> to be a fly on the wall of Rolling Stone, uh, even if they don't have any – formal procedures, I could place money on nobody forgetting this. And everybody, uh, this will inform their decisions, I imagine, for a long time. Um, I think this is uh, kind of a hard thing to, to forget. And, 
And it's going to be a hard thing to get out from under. You know, we, people are going to be questioning their stories um, for a long time. They're going to really, really have to work hard to prove themselves. Yeah. You know, I hope that you're right. I, I, but I, particularly those sort of the for a long time part. One thing that I do notice with journalism organizations, big institutions, is they'll go through a crisis of conscience. I mean, assuming they're willing to do that and assuming that's actually happening behind the scenes at Rolling Stones. First of all, I hope you're Rolling Stone. I hope you're right about that part, too, that at some, some level they're rending their garments and saying, you know, what have we wrought? Um, but I also know that, like, after the Jason Blair thing, the New York Times made all kinds of rules for itself. You know, we're not going to do this and we're not going to do that. And Bill Keller came forward and made this big pronouncement about, all, they're not, we're not going to use anonymous sources anymore. And we're gonna, I don't know. About a year later, I sort of, I'm reading the New York Times thinking, you know, it's not that different. You know, I mean, after a while, reporters kind of go back to what they were doing before. I, I agree with you that Rolling Stone will never be this stupid <laughs> about not fact checking a story. But I, I just I don't know if they're going to be ethically transformed. You know, that you see the distinction I'm making. Yeah, that certainly remains to be seen. And and, you know, um, we, we, there was an interesting question in the Q&A about, you know, the ethical folks of this. And, and the point that was made by the authors was, you know, let's. This isn't. This wasn't. You know, blaming Jackie, for instance, wasn't an ethical fault. This was just bad journalism, and um, and those things can be fixed, but they have to exist at every level. And when you're working at an institution, you know, that can be tricky. Uh, Kristen here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Kristen here, online reporter for the Pointer Institute. Uh, we're going to take a little break here. When we come back, we're going to have a conversation with a documentary filmmaker because tonight is the National Basketball Championship on the men's side, and there's this reflexive thing that many of us do. We just sort of hate Duke. Everybody hates Duke. I was thinking over the weekend. I actually tweeted over the weekend that if Wisconsin beats both both Kentucky and Duke, there'll be almost no way to adequately thank them uh, as a nation for what they've done. And I was gratifyingly and massively retweeted and favorited for that tweet. But then I thought, well, what does that really mean? Like, why do I, why would I hate Duke now? What reason do I have to hate Duke? And so anyway, we're going to talk a little bit to the uh, director of the film, I Hate Christian Leitner, which is not only about hating the very specific Duke player, Christian Leitner, but about this sort of incredible national tradition of um, hating a Duke. So uh, we'll come back with that. I want to remind you again, the Ear Cave tonight at the Carriage House Theater. That's what it's called. It's what it, I think it's what it's called. In Hartford uh, and uh, Wednesday night, David Edelstein, America's Greatest Living Film Critic, joins me at Watkinson. Call Watkinson to get your tickets now. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Julia Pistel and Sydney Lauro. Greg Hill appears in our intros and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Cherokee Parks. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff waiting in the bathroom line at Wrigley Field, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, can we copy your notes? A show about cheating. And now... 
back to Colin. Tonight, a lot of Americans are going to be watching the NCAA Men's Basketball Championships, and most people didn't either attend Wisconsin or Duke, or for that matter, Kentucky or Michigan State. They may have very little geographic connection to any of those places as well. But the one thing that many of them will be able to do in order to sort of insert a, uh, some energy uh, into their experience tonight is hate Duke, which is just it's something that people kind of do. So we thought about that. And then we thought, well, you know, there's one person we could talk to right away. Rory Karf is the director of for ESPN 30 for 30 film, the documentary I Hate Christian Leitner. By the way, I have to say, I was I thought, well, I'll watch half of it just to get ready for the interview. I went up watching the whole thing because it's so addictive. So first of all, Rory Karf, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, this is obviously, um, it's a documentary about a lot of different things. It is a documentary about Christian Leitner himself, the legendary, iconic star for Duke in decades past. But it's also about Duke itself and then also about the psychology of hating, too. And I thought it might be interesting to start there, that, you know, really one of the things that be, kind of comes out in the documentary is people always almost seem to need some people, anyway, seem to need to have some rooting interest in sports that's based on hatred, that that's, it's useful to people somehow. Yeah, I think maybe sports is kind of an outlet for everyday life. You know, things that frustrate you or bother you in the real world or just in day-to-day monotony of living, people then go and put that on sports. So we kind of go through the film and, and look at that, like, you know, nobody likes the bully or people that are, you know, you feel like a privileged or getting away with something. And those are some of the reasons why Christian was hated. But it's not always accurate, as we tell in the film. And sometimes we are hating, in quotes, uh, perceptions versus reality. Well, I'm just going to bring up a clip right now that kind of gets to what you're talking about. This is from I Hate Christian Leitner, directed by our guest, uh, Rory Karf. This is Duke professor Mark Anthony Neal. You think about UNC or NC State, you're thinking about working class kids from the South. When you think about students at Duke, you're thinking about one percenters or the children of one percenters from Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Yankees. And that's very much the image of Duke, very much the image of Christian Leitner. And, you know, it is sort of true that there's sort of a tripwire that gets kicked. I mean, even if you remember, like, the Duke lacrosse scandal, everybody immediately had an image of a Duke lacrosse player, some guy with a lacrosse shirt with a popped collar and, you know, the, a kind of a very sort of one percenter bro uh, look sure. to him. And so one of the things that you reveal about, for starters, Christian Leitner is he just – he isn't really that guy, you know. He comes from basically a pretty working class, or at least lower middle class, Buffalo, New York family. Yeah, his uh, mother was a school teacher. His father worked in a printing press. They were definitely lower middle class. And he went to a prep school in high school, so people assumed he came from money. But he was on the work program at the prep school, which meant in the summertime he worked as a member of the custodial staff and would clean the school. So uh, very working class. But, you know, he gave off that vibe. I think in the film, what we try to do is, which I always think is good to do if you can in a documentary, is just challenge people's perceptions of things. Even with race, here is Duke considered a white school. And, you know, we kind of go through the in the film and say that when it came to money, uh, you know, Christian, Bobby Hurley, these white guys on the team, they actually came from the lower middle-class backgrounds, and it was Graham Hill, an African-American, whose father was a former professional athlete that actually had the money. And even um, 
if you remember in the film, you know, this team's compared a lot to the Fab Five in Michigan. They were the rivals, Duke and Michigan. And one of the members of Michigan, Chris Weber, who had this perception of growing up on the streets, actually grew up in a, you know, more privileged background than Leitner. So I just think it's good to challenge things. And the fact that Christian's best friend on the team was an African-American surprised people. So I think that's, if you can do that in life, you know, not just judge a book by its cover, probably a good way to go about things. It seems to me there are other things that contribute to this phenomenon. You know, absolutely, there absolutely has always been this kind of perception of Duke as a place where one percenters uh, or whatever, whatever we want to call them, America's ruling class manifests itself as also a collegiate athletic power. Your documentary kind of undermines a lot of that. But I think there's also the success itself and then the kind of success. One of the things that Duke and Leitner really specialized in was sort of snatching the dreams away from these other teams. So, I mean, you chronicle something that's very well known where I'm sitting right now, the 1990 uh, Elite Eight game where Leitner once again stepped onto the court from an inbounds pass and made this impossible shot to beat uh, UConn. But he kind of specializes in that, the 75-foot pass from Grand Hill, the turnaround jumper to beat Kentucky. There's some way in which they kind of specialized in crushing other people's hopes at the last minute. And I wonder if that also feeds into the animus. I think it does. I think just the fact that they were winning some, they started to win. For a while, Duke would get to the big game and lose. But then they just, when they went back to back, you know, it's almost like the New England Patriots, you know, with everyone outside of New England. They're like, oh, them again, you know. And some people like dynasties, but there's a big portion of people that want to see a, a new team or an underdog team and, Tonight, you've got Wisconsin versus Duke, and I'm sure there's a huge segment of the population that wants Wisconsin because they're new and maybe more fresh and a different team. But then there's going to be another group that says, well, look, Coach K, this will just add to his dynasty and the greatness. But people like to hate on great. And uh, I think that is definitely a reason you were talking and it made me think of something, you know, when you bring up, like, the idea of who people are at Duke and and all this. I think sometimes in the media, you let me know if you agree or not, but we like to kind of go with a storyline. Mm-hmm. Whether it's true or not, it just makes a good story. And it just makes me think about what's in the news right now with that UVA Rolling Stone story. Yep. You know, that was, it kind of fit a great narrative. And I think we do that in sports too. You know, if the narrative's right, this is the, these are the rich kids versus the working class kids, or this guy He's a hero because his child is sick or whatever it is. Sometimes we go with these narratives. We saw it with Lance Armstrong, the hero narrative. And I think it's good to question those things sometimes and realize that, you know, seeing isn't always believing. With the Duke lacrosse story, we have sort of a similar thing to the UVA story. So, I mean, we don't even have to speculate a line between the two. It's right there. We're talking to Rory Karf. He's the director of ESPN 30 for 30 film, I Hate Christian Leitner. So there is, the, you know, as you say, there's that winning thing where they're just sort of winning all the time and, and, and beating these other teams at the last minute and breaking hearts and stuff. But there's also, you mentioned the Patriots. I think it's a good analogy. There's sort of how you win and how you act too, right? So Bill Belichick is just a hard guy to like. You know, he doesn't make himself easy to like. He doesn't care whether we like him or not. And that was another aspect of Leitner, right? Grand Hill's a pretty engaging guy. He's actually he's doing commentary in this Final Four, and he's fun to listen to. But Leitner, Leitner never even went to the trouble of trying to get us to like him. Right. I mean, sometimes perceptions are reality. <laughs> That's the other thing. <laughs> I mean, sometimes these things are true. 
So it's never one way, usually, or the other. But, yeah, with Christian, he put out that vibe of arrogance. And, you know, in the film, someone says, we want our sports heroes to care, you know, and we want our athletes to actually act like they care. And he gave off the vibe that he didn't care. Mm-hmm. He didn't care whether you liked him, whether you hated him. And that really set off this feeling of that, you know, he thinks he's better than me. And people didn't like that. I don't know if that's necessarily true in knowing Christian that he's really like that. I think he's someone who's very self-assured and has a strong sense of self and who he is. I wish, you know, I had such a strong sense of self that he has. <laughs> but I think that was a big reason, though, getting back to your original point of why people didn't like him, is that he just gave off this vibe of arrogance. Well, I think one of the things that people have, Americans have a hard time forgiving somebody who appears to have no sense of humor about himself. Now, right now, he's in a series of commercials with a bunch of other uh, former basketball stars where for the first time that I'm aware of, you kind of see Christian Leitner participating in a joke about his own image. In one of the commercials, he's lying in a hammock that turns out to be made out of nets that he's cut down at championships. And he's he's being very Christian Leitner about it, too. He's being kind of a jerk and taunting the other players in the room about it. It's the first time, and obviously he didn't write it, he didn't plan it, but he's he's at least participating in something that's a little bit of a joke about his image. I mean, in working with him on this film, did you see at all any kind of sense of humor about it? Well, the film's called I Hate Christian Leitner, so right there... Well, that was your title, though. (laughs) For him to participate in it, he's got to have a good sense of humor. I think he definitely does and, and sees the humor in it. Otherwise, I don't think he would have participated in the film. You know, I mean, in the open, you know, we had a staged open where we had actors and different people dressed in I Hate Christian Leader t-shirts all yelling and booing at him, which he participated in. And he took pictures with everyone afterwards. So he embraces the hate, I should say. Tonight, people are going to be watching this championship game, and, and a lot of them are going to be taking the opportunity to hate on Duke. And you know, I don't know, maybe 30% of that might be the memories of that particular era where Grant Hill and Bobby Hurley and Christian Leitner were just so dominating and winning in a very particular way. But at the most, that can be 30%, right? I mean, 70% is something that got carried forward. And I don't well, know what... going. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. We say in the film that Leitner was a trailblazer, but these other guys came in as kind of like second comings of Leitner, uh, that people don't like J.J. Reddick or Wojciechowski, different people that other people hated, but like <laughs> same, different versions of Leitner. He was the original, you know, and these were kind of the copycats, but just gave people more reason, more fuel to the fire. So he maybe started the perception and really got it going on a national level, but other people came in and just kept, you know, they were torchbearers for that hate. You know, the oddity about this is, I mean, I usually root against Duke just because I'm intellectually lazy and it gives me something, <laughs> some way to graft on to one of these games. But I noticed on Saturday Night Live this week, an interesting thing happened, which is they, they did an opening sketch about the, the Final Four. And it was pretty clear to me that they had juggled it a little bit, that they probably had written it about Kentucky, but they had a sort of Duke plan in case Kentucky wasn't still viable by by 1130 Eastern time on Saturday night. So they wind up doing it about Duke. And what was odd about it was it didn't quite work because some of the writing had to do with players only staying for one year and stuff like that. I mean, it's funny because people hate Kentucky because they see Calipari as this recruiting machine, you know, and people are one and done or they're two and done. And that's not why people hate Duke, right? I mean, players stay at Duke a lot longer. It's it's a different kind of basketball factory. 
Yeah, I mean, it's changed a little bit. I think you saw with yeah. Jabari Parker, the one and done. But, you know, with Christian, it wasn't even um, an issue for debate whether he would stay for his senior year back then. If he was playing now, he probably wouldn't have maybe graduated and might have left after a sophomore or junior year. Maybe we would never even have the shot against Kentucky. It's just so tempting to leave now. I mean, I think if I was a college basketball player, I would leave. You know, it's just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You just don't know what's going to happen. But, yeah, it seems like a Duke, though, the kind of player that Coach Krzyzewski recruits and is brought up in the film, someone who can meet the academic standards of Duke. And, again, I, I think that's something that should be admired, that he's really recruiting student athletes. Students, too, not just the athletes. And I think they brought that up. You know, that was part of that sketch you mentioned at Saturday Night Live. Didn't he say he was going to sit someone because they had a biology yeah, yeah. or something? But, again, some people look at that as maybe being pretentious or not realistic. And, look, haters are going to hate no matter what. No matter what you do, people if they don't like you, people are going to find a reason why. I think that's what Christian brings up. You can't If you worry about pleasing everybody, you're going to wind up pleasing nobody. So you try, to, I guess, to please the people that are most important in your life and everybody else. If they like you, they like you. If they don't, they don't. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, the the other message, one of the other messages that comes out of the film is Leitner and, and Leitner as a placeholder for a certain kind of Duke player. Leitner was unusually handsome. Most of the other players haven't been as handsome as he is. But sort of the idea of handsome, smart enough to, to make it at Duke and then very successful at basketball. And we're just we're just not very good at suppressing our envy, I think, you know, when somebody's kind of a triple threat that way. Yeah, we like to see, you know, people that have flaws because, you know, it makes them more relatable. It's like when you see a model, like, you know, they, they look too perfect. I don't look like that when I get out of bed, so, like, why should that person? And, you know, I think there was some of that with Christian, and we get into the film in that era, and people started saying that he was gay. And that was kind of a way to cut him down a little bit, bring him down a peg, because at that time, that was a huge slur to say to a male athlete that they were gay. Mm -hmm. Now, if people did that, they would be the ones being shamed. But back then, it was Christian that was being shamed for possibly being gay. Uh, Rory Carver, it's great to talk to you. The documentary is loads of fun, and it does shift your perspective. It, it can't fail to change your, change you a little bit, no matter how much you think you hate Christian Leitner and or Duke. I'll be watching tonight and rooting for Wisconsin anyway. You didn't radicalize me that much, Rory. But uh, well, And also, too, I don't have an agenda in the film. You know, if you hate Christian, hate him. I mean, I think we try to just present <laughs> true facts. And, you know, that some of it is, is hateable, some of it might not be but totally comfortable with after the film, somebody hating or not hating. That's fine with me. Also, too, uh, the film is available on Netflix now if uh, any of your listeners want to stream it. Oh, that's great. Rory Karf, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Tucker. Appreciate it. And, well, I'm Colin, but you can call me Tucker or Cherokee Parks. You can call me that, too. That's uh, wrapping up the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to Kion Wolf on the board and uh, Tucker Ives, the guy that he just mentioned, for getting things going here for us today. We'll be back tomorrow. I forget with what. I think you're not successful until you've got haters. It means that you're actually doing something. I mean, I've been working here a long time, and I have a ton. Actually, everyone's been really nice. Huh. Looks like I have some more work to do.